and welcome. Special edition of Hoops Adjacent. David Aldrich here. Um, Waz is on assignment today, <laughs> was, as we all are kind of trying to do a bunch of different things, but um, wanted to uh, spend a little bit of time with some people. And I, would, I really am happy that we were able to get three Minneapolis guys um, on the show today, because that's what I really was hoping for, because um, I don't want to be that guy that parachutes into town and tells everybody what's going on in their city, um, and especially on something like this, as we all try to deal with this ongoing um, crisis in our country, crisis in black America, and crisis in America, period, uh, with the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd. Um, by Minneapolis police officers, one of whom has been charged uh, with third-degree murder and manslaughter. The others have not, as of this tape, been arrested yet. But um, I wanted to kind of get as as big a view as we could of, of the micro and the macro in that city. Um, and I'm happy that we have three people that that are part of that town and have been part of that town for a long time and can really help us understand what's going on in that town. Start with uh, my buddy, John Krasinski, who covers the Wolves and and basically covers everything in Minneapolis for us at The Athletic and does it so well. Um, John, thank you for joining us, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, DA. Happy to be with all three of you here for this. Yeah. um, Also on the show today is my longtime friend, Ray Richardson. Ray has been... and I broke into the league, covering the league together. He was covering the Wolves while I was covering the Bullets in the late 80s, early 90s. And Ray's been a part of the scene in Minneapolis forever um, as a writer, as a DJ, as a host. He's now on KMOJ. Ray, thank you for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. And uh, also joining us today is Henry Lake, who hosted – Weekly weeknight show from nine to one on WCCO in Minneapolis. He has been part of the radio scene for more than 20 years as well. Started, I believe you started working with, uh, at KFAM with Dan, Dan Barrero and Chad Hartman. Is that right, Henry? Absolutely. I was their, their last intern before they split, okay. split and went their separate ways. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So Henry's been part of, you know, he's been, on air for a very long time in Minneapolis, uh, came back to town in 2018 and um, has been doing a great job. But I wanted, again, I thank all of you for coming because I, I want as many perspectives on the city itself and how it is coping and how it hopes to move forward. And all of you being on the ground there can give us some great perspective. But Ray, I wanted to start with you. And, and I really, I'm happy that you're able to join us because you knew George Floyd personally. Um, and what often happens in situations like this, when people are, are, are killed senselessly, they tend to almost become a caricature of themselves. You know, in, in death, we, we want to honor them. Uh, we, they become martyrs. And I mean that in a good way. Um, so I think people forget that was an actual person, you know, who, who lived and died. Um, and so Ray, you actually knew George and I was hoping you could take a few minutes to just tell people about your experiences with him over the years uh, in, in not, not necessarily in Minnesota, but in Houston as well. Right. I did not know him in Houston, but he had moved from Houston here to Minnesota, I believe around 2016, 2017. 
but it was in, in late 2017 where he and I uh, came in contact. I was working for a community organization called YWCA St. Paul as a career pathways coordinator. And one of my roles was to help run our CDL truck driving training program. And uh, George had come through to apply and he went through the application process and passed all the all the steps and measures and the screening and he got accepted. And once a guy gets into uh, or a lady gets into our program, uh, either I or maybe one of our other team members will take them on as, uh, as their coach or connection. Well, George happened to be under my watch. Uh, he was the guy that I was responsible for uh, through his uh, permit process to get his permit. And then also I worked with him when he was assigned to our truck driving training school. Uh, he was starting to be a class A driver, which means you're driving a truck with a trailer attached to it. That's that's the um, the high end of being a truck driver. And he got his class A permit, was doing very well with his training. And it's kind of unfortunate that he did not get a chance to finish it. But from the interactions I had with him, this is what I remember. When I first saw his picture on the TV, when when it was him that was, was killed, one of the first things that jumped out at me was, was how respectful he was, um, how courteous, how polite, how determined. Uh, he, he, he always followed instructions, was, was never a problem with us. He, he was always courteous in, in how he dealt with us. Um, it was, he was just a, a class guy and a good guy all around. And one of the things that really spoke, spoke to me about his character was when he knew that he was having trouble finishing his training, he reached out to me and said, Hey man, I don't, I don't know if I can do this because I got to start working. I got to make a little money. And I said, well, go ahead and do what you got to do. Uh, but come back to me in a couple of weeks and, and I'll reschedule you. So he did come back and try to finish up his last two to three weeks of training, but he just, he still couldn't do it because the job he had was a, it was a nighttime job. And it turned out that the job he started working at was where they found that he was working at when he, when he died, a place called Conga Latina Bistro, a real popular Latino restaurant in, in Northeast Minneapolis. And I didn't know that's where he was at at the time, but it was the, the schedule that he had prevented him from getting up early in the morning to do his truck driving. And I, I had a feeling that he wasn't going to be able to finish. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, I, I checked on all my people and he was one of the guys I checked on just to get an update on his training. I never got a bad report on him. He, uh, he would have, he would have been a very excellent truck driver because he had an IQ for it. And I never got nothing but good, re- good reports on him. And he was on his way. It's just a little sad that, uh, he didn't, he didn't have the financial stature to, to stay with us to get that license. Cause had he had it, uh, he'd been driving a truck right now, making 20 to 25 to 30,000 an hour. And so he probably wouldn't have needed that nighttime job. So this, these are like, these are semis essentially, right? He would have been driving. Those, yeah, yeah. 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 Man, that's so, it just adds another layer of awful to this awfulness. Um, you, you mentioned that, that he was a very courteous guy. And I just wondered like, you know, in our line of work over the years, you get to, you know, people who are, who are on, who are legit people who are good guys and people who are kind of pretenders. Right. Um, so how did yeah. you, how did you, how did you figure out that this guy really was on point and was trying to do the right thing? 
just just his mannerism. And, um, you know, when I first saw him, I mean, this is a guy who's about six, four or six and a half mm. and just ripped. I mean, he, he was, he was built. I mean, he looked like he could still post some people up and can still take some people to the basket. I mean, really, uh, I could tell he played ball somewhere, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the thing that, that really jumped out at you all the time. I mean, he was an imposing figure, but it was just, you know, his, his quiet demeanor and, and professionalism about what he was doing with us, uh, calm demeanor. Um, I mean, he could talk now. We talk hoops every now and then. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, he wanted to talk about just sports all the time. He was very focused on trying to get his permit and then get that get that license driving that truck. I mean, he he made it known to me that, hey, this is what I really want to do, man. I, I really appreciate you giving me a chance to be in this program. And it's just the overall um, demeanor of him that, you know, that stood out to me first. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of characters that come through the CDL program. Some guys, you got a baby. Some guys, you got to stay on. But he wasn't that way at all. I never had to worry about him. Yeah. John, you, you've been uh, you've been on on the ground with Carl Anthony Towns, with Josh Okoji, and some of the other players that have taken part in, in some of the protests over the last few days. And I am sure that, like, probably every team, the the Wolves have had some internal discussions about how they wanted their players to be out there um, or if they wanted their players to be taking part in these things. And just, just from your talking to to the players and also to the team, like how has that worked in terms of the, the relationship between the organization and the players? Because the players obviously have a very strong feelings about this and want to be part of the communities at a time like this. Yeah, it's been uh, something that the Wolves have really embraced, I think, uh, since this whole thing started. Uh, they, they have put out a, a strong video statement that probably goes above and beyond what a lot of the, the boilerplate stuff that we've seen from other teams has. And they have been very encouraging of their guys to speak their minds when they want to. And uh, what one thing about the Timberwolves, especially on the basketball operations side, Gerson Rosas is Colombian. He's got Joe Branch, who's African-American, as an assistant GM. He has two uh, Indian-Americans who are uh, prominent fixtures in the front office in Robbie Sika and Sachin Gupta. He's got uh, Ryan Saunders as David Vanterpool, uh, Kevin Burleson as guys, people of color who are on their staff. And so they, they are coming at this from, I think, a, a little bit more of a position of understanding than maybe some other organizations and so they have not hesitated to really speak their minds and and try and be leaders of the conversation in the community towns has been quiet because his mother has you know still covered from his mother's passing but josh akogi has been very vocal um about what he has seen and about the minneapolis that he knows and his reaction to this killing and um, and you know the the ownership and the business side has been supportive of that of that as well. So all, all in all, it's it's a pretty progressive, pretty forward thinking organization that way. And I think that they want to be prominent in this conversation, and they want their guys out front and you know as as people that that others will look to for for guidance on this. 
Henry, let's look at the other end of the telescope. What's what are you hearing from your listeners and and, and being in the community in terms of how the city is dealing with this? When you look at how everybody's dealing with it, David, it's um, it's it's right now the way that I would describe it. I feel like everybody's traumatized and everybody's dealing with a whole heck of a lot, and we're on a roller coaster right now. You know, the, the range of emotions that people are going through every single day that we're living through this nightmare is people feeling angry, people feeling frustrated with the system, feeling depressed about the state of affairs here. You you know, put it into some context here. One thing that we have to remember about specifically the metro area of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and just let's broaden it out to Minnesota. Let's go back a couple of years. We had the, the case with Philando Castile, right. that gentleman who was killed in cold blood. And we saw the video and we saw the traumatizing images of his fiance mm-hmm. in the front seat and his daughter is in the back seat and he's brutally murdered by a police officer. Right. So think about this. We went through that on a national level. And people were outraged and people were upset and people were frustrated, right? Mm -hmm. We are still dealing through that. Like, like people have to understand folks are still traumatized from that. They haven't recovered from that. That's, that's recent history. Mm -hmm. And now we're here yet again, trying to work through another situation. You know, when I think about what we're all going through and and specifically from the perspective of of a black man, we all get it. We understand in society that there are certain things that that we that we learn, like how do how do we cope? How there are certain situations where we know that we there are things that we have to do to protect ourselves, right? And yeah. and so when you think about that on a day to day, and now all of a sudden in 2020, some of my white colleagues and friends are like, "Man, I didn't really know." I think that's kind of mind blowing to me that that. Some of the truths and some of the things that I have to deal with on a day-to-day and live through, that a lot of people are just – it's almost like they've been sheltered to think that everybody was, was equal. You know, so that's – those are some of the things that people are talking about. People are talking about accountability or lack thereof in terms of policing in this country, and I think that that's the cru- crux of the problem. Um, th- there's just a lot going on in, in terms of where we're at and how we're feeling frustrated by all of this and – I guess I would look at it this way. One of the things that's heavy on my heart in looking at how black people and specifically black men, their lives are taken away from them in such a brutal way, like we just saw with Mr. Floyd. People think that we're going to get change based on the fact that there are video cameras and and stuff is being shown. Black people for the last decade have been dying at the hands of police officers, and we have video. Video does not matter with us. We cannot lean on that as a crutch. We have seen it time and time again. And right now, one of the reasons why so many people in this country are protesting and are being so outspoken is because we're saying that we're fed up. That we're tired of the killings. We're tired of people not being held accountable. We're tired of, of everything. So, you know, one of the things I love about this conversation is that NBA basketball players and, 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 and are, are going out 
and they're on the front lines, Malcolm Brogdon, Jalen Brown, and all those, that's impactful. That's meaningful. To hear Malcolm Brogdon be out amongst the people in Atlanta and speak to his grandfather once marching with Martin Luther King Jr., like that means something to me. You know, that touched me. I'm a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta. That, that struck me. You know, so I think that we have to continue to keep moving forward with all of this. But, but David, my concern is, is that we, we have these incidents happen. And then after a couple of months, we get complacent. We haven't gotten justice for Eric Garner. We haven't gotten justice for Tamir Rice. We haven't gotten justice for Philando Castile. We haven't gotten justice for Trayvon Martin. And I know that wasn't at the hands of a police officer, but still, we still didn't get justice. So there's a, my ground. We, we just there's a lot of things that we have to come to grips with. And I guess the the last thing that I will say in this long winded uh, uh, <laughs> answer for you is that when I, I speak to people that don't look like me, people that are not black, one of the things I want them to know is that right now with everything that's going on in our country, everything, you have to pick a side. Right. You cannot be in the middle. You, you cannot, this is not a, there's good people on both sides. No, you have to take a stand mm-hmm. and you have to say what's going on is wrong. It's wrong. And I want to be on the right side of history. Yeah. Well, I'm old enough to remember watching video of police officers beating up Rodney King and going, well, it's on tape. So they obviously, it's going to change now, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, it has to change now. It's on tape. They can't deny it, right? So we've been at this for a minute. Um, I want to talk, I want each of you to kind of weigh in on this though, because as I'm sure you all know, to your chagrin probably, the shorthand on Minneapolis for a lot of people, not everyone, but the shorthand is, Prince, Mary Tyler Moore, Kevin Garnett. That's the short end of Minneapolis. But what is the real and city? Puckett. And Kirby Puckett. What is the real city like on a daily basis in terms of just the interactions between black people, white people, Latino people? How does this city get along or not get along? Because I'm not there and you all are. So anybody, all, any one of you can jump in and then the other two can follow up. Well, to, to be honest, DA, uh, this city, Minneapolis, and I'm going to put St. Paul in the market too because we're right across the river. Right. It's a melting pot. Um, you, you don't have a lot of uh, racially divided neighborhoods here. Everybody sort of lives with everybody. Even even in North Minneapolis where there's a very high concentration of black folks, you got white people living in North Minneapolis too. So in terms of, of how we get along, we from what I, I've been here since 1990, this this area gets along fine with with each other. It's it's the, it's the issues that that get involved with the police department. That's where right. everybody's antenna goes up. Yeah, you we don't you don't hear much about race relations at all until there's some issue like this. I mean, you and I don't mean to be be funny, but that you could you could be walking with a white lady and nobody turning to turn their head around here. Uh, the interracial right. dating is, is very strong here it's on both sides. I mean, everybody tends to say this is liberal middle America here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I, and I can contrast that because in Chicago, where I grew up at, there were neighborhoods you would not want to go into after dark. 
because right. you're not sure if you're going to come back to your side of town or not. It, Chicago is set up like that, but here it is totally opposite. This is a very friendly community. I've, I've, I've had nothing but good times here, uh, you know, interacting with the community here, but it's when the police department, and there's been some other discrimination type factors here, but it's mainly the police department that has brought out the racial disharmony more than anything else that I can put my finger on. And that part there makes Minneapolis-St. Paul just like any other major market city in the country. We got the same issues that everybody else has, and it's being reflected on TV now. Right. You know, if there is a, a positive to this, is that this is not just a Minneapolis-St. Paul problem. Everybody in the country has jumped on board with this and said enough is enough. Even It's even across the water. Now, I saw a protest in London. Yeah, I saw right. today, I saw a guy in Syria, in Syria, doing a mural of George Floyd, painting a mural on the streets of Syria. I think it was Damascus. Mm-hmm. And I said, he's, George has made it to the Middle East <laughs> with his that? message. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone global now. It's gone worldwide. And you, you hope that the message finally gets through that there needs to be some change in how you know, some white people deal with, with black folks. <laughs> I hope that's the underlying message out of this. But it's, in terms of Minneapolis-St. Paul getting along, we're fine until the police do something that just riles us up. And now we're back at square one again. Right. Well, David, I, I want to hop in because I want to I want to make a point about and it, I'm glad that that Ray um, just passed the baton on this, because one of the major problems that has to be addressed is that we have in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we have a lot of times we have police officers that are patrolling communities and trying to protect and serve communities of people that. They don't. They don't live in the community. Right. That, that's problematic. You cannot have people patrolling and working for the Minneapolis Police Department, and they live in Egan or Ember Grove in these different suburbs because they don't. They don't have a connection with the people. The, I think that a lot of uh, there's a segment of white America that thinks that when it comes to policing, that it's the Andy Griffith show and it's Barney fights, and you know these people. That's not what's going on. Right. The reality is, is we have people that they're policing people. They don't have any connection. They, they don't love the community. They don't love the people that they're supposed to, quote, protect and serve. And there's a disconnect there. And that's and that's it, it works against relationship building when it comes to the actual job. Like that's a part of police work. It's lost nowadays. Right. John, what do you think? D, I want to add a I want to add. Oh, a go quick, ahead, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, back to that. I want to add a quick set, and, and, and Henry is right on target with that. He 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 uh, he's right on. He took my thunder. Um, there's I just saw this stat three days ago. Ninety four percent of the Minneapolis police officers do not live in Minneapolis. Ninety four percent. That's amazing. And let me enhance that a little bit more. Derek Chauvin lives on my side of town. I'm in St. Paul, and he lives in Oakdale, which is a suburb 10, 10 minutes east of me. Right. So he, he passes by my area every day back and forth to go to work. And when he's done doing whatever he does in Minneapolis, he gets to drive back to, to Oakdale. I've always thought that was a problem. And I don't know if they can legislate this or not, but they need to look at it. If you're going to be a police officer in your city, 
you may want to, they may want to try to enforce that residency law and make sure that all of our officers live in that city where they work. Because Henry's right. If you live in that city, you're going to be more invested in your assignment. Chances are you're going to, you're going to run into people that you know, sure. and you can help diffuse the situation because you know them. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned Rodney King earlier, it came out doing that, that most of the cops in L.A. live in Simi Valley. Right. Which is a, another exclusive suburb in the L.A. area that, you know, those guys drive home to Simi Valley and come back into L.A. to go to work. There needs to be some accountability on, on, on where these folks live at to really get the most out of their job. And until they fix that, we may still keep having these problems. Right, right. John, John what do you think? Yeah. There? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I've done a lot of reflecting on our community and I've lived here 38 and a half of my 41 years on this planet. Um, and I've always been really proud of being from here. And, you know, one of the things that I, I agree, especially with Ray, what what he's talking about in terms of the relative, I think, racial harmony mm-hmm. that is here when you say, you know, there's a lot of polite stoic scandinavians here and there's not (laughs) you know there's there's not yeah exactly it's there's not there's not the 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 sort of overt racism that you know i lived in alabama for a while and you know that that you would see down there necessarily but here's the difference and both lake and ray are spot on with the police element and the law enforcement side of things there's, but there's this other part of it that I've really, as I've researched more of it and thinking more about it, that you find out that um, the black-white achievement gap in education in Minnesota is among the worst in the country. That some of the schools um, that that are in the the Minneapolis and St. Paul area are as segregated as many in the country because years and years ago there were sort of redlining through districts that tried to steer people of color into certain areas and, and white people into other areas. And so um, there, there's just sort of this undercurrent of division that uh, it, that maybe you don't really kind of realize necessarily is right there because it's not punching you in the face every single day, right. but it, it's there. And it certainly had an effect on things in terms of, probably, you know, who police are relating to and what they're seeing from day to day. And and so I think we all think of ourselves in Minneapolis and St. Paul as, as fairly progressive. We've had Democratic mayors forever and ever. Uh, we have a Democratic governor right now. But a lot of the, the, the base institutions and systems in place are kind of designed to make it easier on white folks and more difficult on black folks. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that is a major part of this, uh, this community as well. Right. So a, a question for, again, for all of you um, over the years, we've seen sports, uh, either teams or players uh, be able to help communities in very, very difficult times. Uh, we certainly remember how important it was that the Tigers went to the World Series in 1968, the year of the riots in Detroit, the year, a- the year after the riots in Detroit, I should say, um, after the bombing at, uh, at the Boston Marathon. Remember Big Poppy getting up and, and giving 
his very, very dramatic speech about how he loved Boston and Boston was going to come back from this. And then 9-11 happened and, and we saw the Yankees going to the World Series but playing baseball again. And uh, whatever you think of George Bush, him pitching, throwing the ball off the mound and, and really galvanizing the country into kind of trying to come back. It may be unfair to ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you do any of you think there's anyone in the city that maybe has that kind of ability, even if they're not going to do it or haven't done it yet? Is there anyone or any one of these teams that really has that kind of reach where they may be able to either say or do things that will help facilitate some of the healing going on in the community? I think so. I, I think that, quite honestly, David, I think that every team here has the ability. They, they have the opportunity to step in and, and do something. And when I, when I think about um, the number one team that will probably be on the front line would be the Minnesota Timberwolves because of how active they are in the community and because, you know, let, let's be honest, us as black folks, we love we love basketball, right? <laughs> so so, so there's, there's a massive opportunity there. But I, let, let me put this out there. Because I think that this is, and not just in terms of this community, but I think across the board in the country, I think that professional sports teams right now in this moment and moving forward, they are under the gun. And the reason why I say that is because I think that we are going to be evaluating all of these sports teams right now, moving forward, to figure out, are they truly invested in change? Right. And how how we're going to continue to move forward with this cause. We cannot be just in the moment talking about it. And then after four or five months, we fall back and get complacent. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that that part is going to stop. Everybody right now is being evaluated. Everybody is being scrutinized. Heck, you guys saw the story last night about the leaked email with, (laughs) with the New York Knicks. Right. And now James Dolan and the, and the organization looks terrible. Now, like no one's going to believe anything that they say moving forward on this specific issue. So Amen. the, the look, look, looking at looking at actual change, I think that right now sports teams are under the microscope and under the gun because they have the ability to continue to create um, positive change and momentum in every city in this country. Because typically when we're in a time of crisis, we have an escape with music. We have an escape with sports leagues. We don't have that right now because of COVID-19. We don't have that escape. So right now we got to do the, the hard work and we got to grind it out. And I think there's a, there's a responsibility for those teams to do that. You know, in, turn, in terms of individual athletes, I don't know if there's any – one or two guys here in this market that stand out that are current athletes. But what I have seen the past few days is a very impressive response from a couple, some former athletes that used to play here and probably grew up here, in particular Royce White. And I don't know if Henry knows about this. Sure. Royce White uh, played a – he didn't have a real long NBA career, but he was a pretty – Pretty good player in college and an outstanding high school player here. So he's got a rep. He's got a name. He and uh, P.J. Hill, uh, Taylor Hill's brother, uh, uh, P.J. played at Ohio State, and he's from South Minneapolis. That's his neighborhood where this is jumped off at. They organized a very powerful, peaceful protest for a couple of days here 
And it was good to see uh, Royce and TJ and, and some other athletes leading that cause. And it, it, it speaks to the value of the message that an athlete can deliver when they're socially conscious. Um, now, on a national level, you know, we've seen almost everybody who, who we know about has spoken up on this and, and denounced it. LeBron was out there with it. Uh, you can name them. Even Michael Jordan uh, made a comment uh, to express his displeasure right. over it and his hatred of it. And, you know, there's another story behind that. Um, you know, Michael didn't used to want to get involved in social issues like this, but he stepped out on this one. If in this in this day and climate, it, it can only help the situation to see athletes who are so revered and so highly, uh, highly visible speak out on this. This is another another arm that the government has to deal with of a, a protest. And it, it, it also speaks to these guys, you know, from where they come from. You know, Malcolm Brogdon was, you know, that that was powerful when I saw him doing what he was doing. Trey right. Young was. At a matter microphone in Oklahoma. Right. These are the folks that our young people can relate to, and if they see an athlete, you know, willing to to risk their brand, so to speak, to get out here and speak the truth, then that's powerful. You know, because right now the message really needs to be given to our younger generation. We need to make sure that they don't lose sight of the message. And because of all the the violence and these other distractions the message of George's death has been a little bit diluted. Right. Hopefully that will change. And I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of a, a change the last two days. There seems to be a concerted effort to have peaceful marches now. I mean, they're really trying to be peaceful. And I think that's going to go a long way to get that message out there like that. Hey, let, yeah, me let me say something real quick to you, David. Let, let sure. me say something real quick to you. Sure. I, the, the, I agree with, with what Ray just said, but, let, let me let me just mention this. We, we have people in the community that have that continue to do great things. I give love and props to my guy, Devin George. Devin George played all those oh, years yeah. and he's right back here in the community and he's voicing his opinion and he's doing great work. Right. So I love Devin. I texted him last night. Um, I think that Carl Anthony Towns is the answer. If you if you ask me about one. And the reason why I say this, is because everybody here right now loves him. And there's the COVID-19 part of it. Right. Him losing his mother to the coronavirus is impactful. And to see him be a part of this right now, I think he's the face. He is the voice. I love Royce White. Um, I had a Black History Month um, program in town hall, and he was he was uh, one of the members in the audience that was supporting me and all that. I love Royce, and he's got a great voice. But I don't think that Royce would be as impactful as Cat because number one, Cat's playing and he's a star right now. And number two, I'm just going to be honest. There, there's a part of our country, and I'm not saying it's right because I support Royce, but there have there are people that have already tuned him out. Mm -hmm. right. Well, yeah, they've, they've already they've already decided that that well, you know, he's he said some things about mental health, and we don't really vibe with him, and we don't. It, it is, I'm not. I'm a supporter yeah. of his, but I, I think that Cat is the guy. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, um, yeah. Just ahead, yeah ahead, in terms of, I, I think Cat is, you know, he's obviously uh, socially aware. He's incredibly intelligent. He, when he speaks, he speaks from the heart. Um, and and I do agree with Lake. He has kind of the, the I think he has the the sympathy of a community 
on his side right now for everything that he's going through with his mother. So whenever he decides to kind of speak his mind on this, and I, I'm sure that at some point he will when he's ready, he's just that kind of a person, I think he will command attention. But here's the other thing that I'll add to that. Uh, you know, I think people are expecting NBA players to do this because this is what they do. This is part of the league's DNA is right. that their players speak out. I think that the, the most popular team in town is the Minnesota Vikings. That's the one that most people watch here. And forever and ever, the NFL has shied away from these types of issues right. and players because of their contracts have been less or uh, a little more reluctant to speak out, but it's not just from the Vikings. It's not just Dalvin cook. It's not just uh Daniel Hunter or you um, pick any African-American player who is, who's a star for, for them. It's gotta be Kirk cousins. Right. It's gotta be Adam Thielen. It's gotta be Jake Lehman with the wolves. It's gotta be um, the white athletes have to start throwing their name into the ring here. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen a little bit of that and a little indication of that from the Steve Nash's of the world and Ryan Tannehill's and things like that. But for, for people, for white people in the Midwest to truly pay attention and to not be allowed to ignore it and not be allowed to look away, it's got to come from everybody in particular, the white athletes who have benefited from their privilege for as long as we can, you know, recall here. Yeah, I, I agree. John, with, yeah. John makes a great point there. Yeah, the white athlete needs to be vocal in this. Um, and I, I got a, I got a ton of love for Cat. I mean, he's an outstanding guy, but I, I don't see him as as a somewhat of a, a poster child for for speaking out. He doesn't have that demeanor. What what this market needs is a guy like Stephen Jackson. It is. It, it would be wonderful to see if he was on the Timberwolves roster right now, because he is the kind of guy that can can draw some attention. He's not afraid to say what needs to be said. When it when it was found out that that George was one of his good friends from childhood, he wasted no time in in making a comment and uh, making himself visible and letting it be known that you know he was hurt. He he was uh, upset and he wanted to do what he can do. He even came up here. Yeah, he came up here from from Texas, wherever he came from. He came up here and stood shoulder to shoulder at press conferences with with Black Lives Matter. He stood there and spoke and said, "Whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it." He had on all the gear that was representing his feelings about George. Uh, he was there with Jamie Foxx that day. They had the press conference in Minneapolis City Hall. It, it takes it takes a um, a presence like that among athletes to really drive it home. Yes, we 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 could use you know a, a word of <laughs> a word of kindness and support for white athletes, but it takes the brothers who've got who've got the moxie to step out there and say what needs to be said. It's got to come from the brothers, and if you don't get all your powerful black athletes to step out and, and say something. And, and John made a good point. I don't think I've seen any Minnesota Vikings players say one word about this. I haven't seen anything no, about that Eric, from them. Eric, 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 I'm missing it. If Eric, I'm missing it. Yeah, yeah, Eric Kendricks has come out and he has, he has called out the NFL. So, so do, uh, check, check his, check him out. He's trending, not trending on Twitter, but, but if you go and look, Eric Kendricks, the, uh, the star linebacker from the Minnesota Vikings has spoken out about, 
the NFL in this entire call. So yeah, he is being vocal. Okay. Well, All right. I want to, I want to close with this. And I, again, I can't thank you guys enough uh, for, for joining me on, on this. Cause it's, it's very important. I think that everybody understand the, the, you know, the, the wholeness of a community that gets kind of ripped apart when something like this happens. Um, it's encouraging to me that all of you have, have said that, that your town has really, um, you know, has, has a, a way of kind of relating to one another that's positive, that there aren't these pockets of kind of segregation and, and you know, discord um, throughout the city that makes it very difficult to kind of cross communities because that's how it's going to be solved is going across communities in, in the area. Um, but I wanted to close on this. You know, what would you like people to know about Minneapolis that maybe we haven't talked about uh, in these 45 minutes or so? I mean, what is it about the city that gives you hope that that this can, you know, it's only going to be resolved if the police officer is convicted. I understand that. There's got to be some sort of justice for this. And I, I, I think he will be, but I, I don't know that for sure. Um, but is there something you guys want people to know about Minneapolis-St. Paul that gives you confidence that this town, that, that your community will be able to, to deal with this, learn from it, and hopefully grow from it? Well, I guess I could start. Now, I, I would say that um, I'm optimistic because, number one, it's an amazing city. It's an amazing city with some amazing people, some amazing companies and businesses that are, that are very progressive thinkers. And I, I think that we're going to move forward from this. I think that we've got some good leadership. And when I say good leadership, it doesn't mean that every decision that's being made uh, by the governor or by the mayor is perfect. Um, everybody's going to make mistakes. But I think that those individuals in terms of a leadership position at the political level and on the grassroots level, I think that there are a lot of people whose hearts are in the right place. So right. knowing that and believing that, I think that, that we can get to a better tomorrow, but we have to truly be invested in it. That's just the bottom line. We got to be truly invested in it. It can't be um, just a couple of week thing. It can't be, okay, we, we, we protested and we marched for a couple of weeks and it, it can't be like that. Like we have to really get to the nuts and bolts and talk about uh, policies and systematically changing things. Like we, we have to be willing to do the hard work. Yeah. John? Uh, Henry's right. Oh, no, go, sorry, go, go, go ahead, Ray. Go ahead, Ray. You, you, you do it, Ray. Go ahead. Uh, Henry's right. Uh, this town, if there's any town that can handle something like this, this is the town to do it because of the diversity, because of the overwhelming support from white citizens here. Uh, that has been really impressive. I mean, you see just as many white people marching as us. And in sometimes I've seen more of them than us marching and uh, making themselves known. But one thing that bothers me a little bit is there's been a very unnerving underculture that has been revealed uh, in this crisis. And I think our, our government leaders, city leaders, were not expecting this. They were caught off guard by this, but yep. they made it known in so many words that there's a um, uh, unwelcome element that's in this town, you know, possibly white supremacists, possibly militia groups, whatever. Mm -hmm. there, there's a current undercurrent in this town that has, has been uncovered right. because of a lot of the violence evidence that's been uncovered. And that part is something that they're going to have to really deal with and get a handle on. 
they got to deal with the police, uh, but they need that's not the end of it. Right. This other element has has surfaced and it's really complicated their efforts to keep peace. And that part there, that's going to be a challenge. All right, John, finish up for us. Yeah, you know, um, I want to be optimistic guys i do like i've lived i lived here my whole life i've always defended us i've always um you know spoken up for us when everyone says you know uh, it's cold there why would anyone want to live there kind of thing uh i i want to i know i know there are great people here that want to find a solution but you know i wrote it today at the athletic and i don't think progress will happen until people here, primarily white people who have had it easy here, start to understand that Minneapolis and St. Paul has not been necessarily what it's been cracked up to be in our eyes. You know, it's easy. Life is easy for us. Life Mm -hmm. is good here for for people who make a a good amount of money and and are white and don't have to worry about police breaking down their door or, you know, don't have to worry about a lot of the things that so many of my friends of color have to deal with every single day. And, you know, it has gotten to a point now where now for going on from this episode on into the future, I think that the, the, the majority of people from outside of our community, when you say, what do you think about when you think about Minneapolis and when you think about Minnesota, they're going to stop saying, Oh, it's, that's the place where it's really cold, right? That's the place where it snows all the time. And it's going to be, oh, that's the place where black people get killed by police. That's the place where riots started um, an entire nation uh, burning to the ground here. And, and, and that's what we have to deal with internally. And we have to understand that, hey, as much as we love it here and as much as uh, – as as we think it's a great place to live, it hasn't been a great place to live for so many people. And until we recognize our flaws, there's no way that we're really going to trust them in any serious fashion. And so I'm hoping that this is the one that changes that, that gets everyone to look in the proverbial mirror and understand what we ha- how far we have to go. But I, I can't say that I'm optimistic about it yet. I have to see some follow through because we have seen it with Philando Castillo. We have seen it with Jamar Clark. We have seen it with so many people uh, over the years, and it hasn't changed. So until we recognize that like, it's not something from the outside, that the call is coming from inside the house, that that's mm-hmm. where the problem is, this isn't going to change. Well, I, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to end on that because, well, I, I, it, it is about the work. Um, as Henry mentioned, you know, we have to do the hard work. All of us have to do the hard work Um, if this is going to get any better, if we're not going to be repeating this in five years or five months um, and talking about, well, this is the one that's going to change it. All of us have to do it. Um, White people have to do it. They have to do most of the lifting. They have to talk to their friends, their their relatives, their pastors, their doctors, their their squash playing partners, or whatever it is, golfing, whatever you know, the, the 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 sewing circles, all of it. Um, and and we and black people have to also do our part. Um, but it can't be on us because people haven't listened to us for four hundred years. <laughs> You know, as Dr. King said, a riot, a, a, a riot is the language of the unheard. That's what a riot is. <laughs> so um, 
I want to uh, thank all of you, though, for, for joining me today. This has been educational for me and I think for our listeners. And I hope everybody will remember um, not just George Floyd, um, but remember Philando Castile and remember Breonna Taylor, remember Aubrey, Ahmaud Aubrey, remember all of the people that aren't here anymore through no fault of their own. So thank you for listening. Appreciate it. God bless and talk to you all next time.